Hello and welcome to the Digital Works Oral History Podcast. This series is called Real Stories, an oral history of London cinema projectionists. Episode 2 explores the joys and pain of the job, the skills and the satisfaction, and touches on the deepest fears of the projectionist. a job that just flies by because you are so busy keeping everything going and then there's periods where you know it's fairly quiet as well once the films are on there's that lull where you can sit down you can relax but there is a degree you know of showmanship you want to put on the best show you can which is why you know a true projectionist will always want to work in a cinema that's got curtains so you can do the curtains, you can set the tabs, or you know the lighting, everything. So it's just slick and smooth and beautiful, and you're projecting the best image possible, and the sound is the best it possibly can be. You've got everything at the right level. So you know the that was very much part of the job. It's almost like a performance. I'm, I'm sure most people say you do feel like you're performing to an audience, and and occasionally you'll get a round of applause at the end of the film, and it's not for you, it's for the film. But it does feel like you've actually kind of been involved in some kind of performance in some way. So in, in a kind of a love of show business, I guess, is part of it. Even though you're squirreled away in the dark, in a darkened room on your own, it's, uh, yeah, you still feel like you're part of the, uh, the film industry in a way. So You used to like put music on, on the non-sync, because it was, it, was, it was like a beer record, and then you went over to tapes, and you'd have it on, and you used to time the track to finish, just as you, boom, started the programme. And so the curtains would open as the track finished. And then you, you'd, you'd put your house lights down first, and when they were halfway down, then you, your pageant lights, which are the ones that like the, t- the tabs, which is the curtains, and then you'd open them up. And then the film would hit the screen, you know? So you want to put on a show and you want your audience to sit down there and... You don't, I know they won't say, oh, wow, that was fantastic opening up, but at the same time, you don't want them to say, oh, God, what happened there? Where, where was the picture? And the curtains were open. And, you know, so you just, I suppose I get a buzz myself out of it. I don't know what the audience are thinking. So as long as I've done it, well, I think it's good. I get a little bit of a, oh, that looked good. But there was a scene in The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, that was it, where you see the beast come out of the sea, this is the first time you see it, and there's a lighthouse, and it grabs hold of the lighthouse, but as the beast rises, right, you get this punchy Warner Brothers music, you know, going, dan, 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 you know, really powerful music, you know, and I used to turn it up like at one point, or something like that, and it, the audience, you know, you could see them down their heads down the bottom watching the film, and they used to go, oh. Carbon arcs were two pieces of carbon. You had a negative and you had a positive. All that happens, you strike them together, and there's a current going through them, and it gives you a little flame. And then you've got a big mirror, and it concentrates that flame on the the gate where the film's going through. And they were motor driven, and in an ideal world, they should run at the speed of the burning. But it could go the other way. They could overrun, which meant they touched. And if they touched, the light would go like that. 
or they would underrun and you burn and burn and burn and when the gap got too wide they went out and these carbons had copper wrapped around them and as they burnt away there was little drips of copper going into a tray and we used to save them every day and, and they were because copper was quite expensive at that time you got a lot of money for it that was the chief's perk a carbon art won't last for the whole program it lasts uh, just over an hour if you're lucky in the early days when i first worked there you had to rush to the toilet and rush back just in case you, your carbon art had gone funny but then xenons came in which is a lamp it's the same principle it's, a, it's, a, it's an arc, but it's in, enclosed in a glass bulb. So it's constant light. You don't, you don't have to worry about it. I mean, the only thing that they did do every now and again was blow up. All films before 1953 were, were, based, were, were done on nitrate stock. Brighton Rock, which I know is only a black and white film, but it was an original release print from 1947 or 48. And it looks stunningly good. It's like what you see high definition TV now. And you could actually see the perspiration on the actors and you could see the makeup and everything. Because in the early days, they were flammable films, so that you couldn't keep them near the projector. And of course, the old machines had to have uh, sort of fire extinguishers attached to them just in case they did go up because you've got a serious fire. But gradually, sort of end of the 50s, they changed to uh, safety film. So that made a lot of difference. The projectionist looked after the building, you know, we, you learnt a bit about everything, plumbing, painting, you name it, we did it. It's a giant poster, they call it 48 sheet, that would be outside the cinemas. You see them in advertising, um, you'd have a strip on it that said next week and it would show the picture was going to happen. Then my job was to climb on the roof, climb down there and put today. But one day the ice cream girl never showed up and the general manager said to me, do you fancy selling some ice creams in the interval? <laughs> this is true, it's absolutely true. And he said, wear a white overall, he said. So I, um, <laughs> I put the white overall on and went down there and I got a load of wolf whistles from girls and that, and even blokes, you know, and sold ice cream. Then I had to go back up the projection box and start the programme. It was about that tactile celluloid, it was about the light transparency and the material of the film, that physical, the physical nature of it, and lacing the projectors and, um, yeah, and then the rewinding the film, feeling for torn, torn sprockets and then splicing the different reels together. The hot, that, it, was, it was very physical and very manual um, craft and I loved that. It was nice to know, get to know the electrical side and the mechanical side. It was nice to you know, being able to strip down a projector as much as you could, cleaning of the equipment, um, main, general maintenance of the equipment with the sound, etc, etc. Yeah, I distinctly remember Ronock floor polish. Now, any good projection room would have a gallon of, seriously, Ronock floor polish to do two things polish the floor and lubricate what they call green prints. I mean, you, what you really wanted to do was just to create a little bit of a lubrication so that it, when it went for the projector for the first time, it wouldn't stick on the gate and create a clattering noise. When you're running a film projector, you can get away with it with rubber bands and bits of gaffer tape and the audience don't know. You've got a full house in NFT1, the film's broken, but it's broken below the gate. 
you just carry on running the film with the film running out on the floor. Because you've got 500 people in there, it's still running because they don't know. So you don't stop the film for something they're not aware of. I think one of my worst film on floor moments was breaking a film down and the cake stand pin breaking as you go in top speed and just the whole film or the rest of it shooting across the projection room, hitting the wall, breaking the ring and just collapsing in a heap on the floor and like you look at it and you're like, oh, cry or laugh, cry or laugh. Walk away, <laughs> walk away first. And because the film's here, we put them on the spools, so you've, you've got to physically check them to put them on the spools to run them. We've got rewind benches, and but literally you've just got a motor on each side and you've got a foot pedal, and you just, you just run it through your fingers, so you physically look at it. You've got a light and everything, so you, you're checking the right ratio, and if there's a tear in it, you can't repair the tear. Sort of, I remember, um sort of rewinding, for instance, Mean Street after having just projected it and watching the film running through my fingers and stopping it and looking at Robert De Niro and thinking, wow. And knowing that the, the sprockets on either side of the film were torn and shredded and that if I'd not looked after it, the next day when, or the next time it came to be screened, it could have just torn and, um, and that film wouldn't have been screenable. The tape splicer became a boon. Because you didn't have to make a join. With a tape splicer, you could just tape over If it's got a split, you could just tape over it, both sides, and that is as good as a join. Whereas with, when the old cement joins, that would have to be cut out, so you'd lose two frames. You'd then have to scrape, scrape both sides, put the cement on, go like that, hold it, and it didn't always hold, so you had to do it again. Um, this is looking actually in the projection room, so you would look at the, the you'd have the portholes, which would which were the glass uh, windows that where the light used to shine through. Looking at it, you'd have you'd have a, a slide projector, then you'd have a Stelmar, which would be a spotlight. Then you'd have projector one, projector two, and then if you were really lucky, you'd have projector three but that was very few and far between. And behind you, you would have the non-sync, which would be the record players. Uh, and in front of you, you'd have a lot of buttons, which would operate the tabs, which are the curtains. Um, you'd have dimmers, which would operate the footlights. It was an art to drop your footlights, strike your arc up, go to the projector, start it up, start to dim the footlights, open the dowser, Check your sound, make sure the records just are going to finish just after the sensor. And that's generally how it worked. Typical projection box. They're yeah, eccentric, unique places and full of old equipment, full of new equipment. There's a real mishmash, particularly NFT1. I mean, it's a really storied projection box. And the fact that it's constructed almost entirely out of asbestos means you can't actually remove anything from it because of the danger of, of pumping particles of asbestos into the air. So old installations that are defunct are still there, just attached to the walls. And we've still got a shelf full of tape cassettes that we can't take down because we don't want to have to shut the projection box to get it clean for asbestos. So everything that's in there is kind of built up over the decades. And, and it, it, it was first opened in 1957. So, I mean, it is literally decades, you know, 60 years. Usually a chair and a desk in the corner kettle 
um, and a radio, a newspaper usually. So yeah, usually usually quite dark places, immaculately clean always. You always, yeah, projection room will always be spotless. Yeah, absolutely spotless. It, I mean, from film, because you couldn't allow the dust on film, so I always find projectionists to be very tidy. So I try and label everything up because if somebody had, my mum used to say, you should always leave the show that somebody can come in and run it if you're not there. So everything's labelled up. So the joke is, it looks, my projection room looks like Batman, the Batcave from the 1960s. <laughs> but I mean, the Prince Charles projectors, you know, all the sound system stuff and about 50 films. And at least 20 of those made up on cake stand rings, leaning against the wall. So, which was a, is a shocker to a lot of projectionists, but it was just normal for me. <laughs> just even lob it off the cake stand, lean it up against the wall. There's all, I think it's like stuff like when we had a pigeon in the auditorium. That was the weirdest thing. It had got in, and I was getting ready for a changeover, and I looked out the porthole, and this thing was looking in at me. And he's like, and I'm like, what are you doing there? And... Yeah, that was weird, because it's trying to get the thing. So you take the glass out, trying to get it to come in. At least if it's in the projection room, you can get hold of it. That was funny. There's something to be said about watching a film from a projection room, particularly when it's on film and you can hear the projector. It's like that thing is giving life to what's on the screen. That's standing and seeing that first light hit the screen. I can see that a thousand times. It still has the same effect to me now. I mean, and in the Scarlet Cinema, we had two big, I think they were West Dexes. I can't be sure, I can't remember. And then another huge 16 mil projector as well, which was a beautiful old thing. And um, yeah, they were quite, they were, they were like dinosaurs. They were massive and beautiful. I loved lacing the films. I loved looking through the little box and watching the light hit the screen. I mean, I think part of the old days was when you walk around Every now and then you go out for a walk round just to clear your head and you hear the, the people lining up waiting to get in and the, you, you can feel the anticipation of what they expect from a film. And obviously in, in the cinema yourself, you're, you're, you're getting the ohs and ahs of the crowd as they're enjoying something or, or maybe getting scared if they're watching Psycho or something. Yeah. Preview cinema kind of bored me a little bit because you don't have the atmosphere of a you know there's just like five people in there sitting watching a film and they're they're analyzing it more than watching it for pleasure whereas in you know when you when you've got a whole audience and they've loved the film um especially in the old days you stand up and clap and that is a real buzz i think one of the most brilliant feelings you can get is when there's a packed auditorium and you're stood at the back of it and there's one of those like big jump out of your seat moments or big belly laugh moment or something like the end of Free Willy where the whale escapes and one of those hugely emotional kind of moments and you get people pouring out of the auditorium and they're just like, thank you so much. Oh my God, that was brilliant. I loved that film. One of the things is managing anxiety because um, you can't get too anxious. You have to be a bit anxious, but you can't get too anxious, otherwise you just lose everything. Have I laced up the projector correctly so that when I actually start it, is it going to, to actually start up properly and not stack or not jump or not be in rack or 
um, the sound loop be too tight or lose the sound loop or I mean you know when you're talking about something physical the amount of risk of it going wrong because you've forgotten to do something because you got distracted by something because you're having a bad day well one of the fears would be a wreck you know and not noticing a wreck and it's actually been on the screen for say you know six minutes or something you know and people are, you can't hear them but the audience are going rack 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 having a rack means that the picture on the screen is all of a sudden the bottom of it is halfway up the screen you know and then you have to run over there and rack it down a bit missing a changeover is bad but you, you you get over that by putting the next wheel on quickly and it, you talk about seconds but uh, i've known someone put a film back in the bin and not rewound it. So, and if you don't watch very carefully, you put it like that and all of a sudden the film's upside down and, and there's no sound sound because the soundtrack's on the wrong side, isn't it? But there is a projectionist nightmare that a lot of us share where um, it, it comes in variations, but we walk into a projection room and for some reason we can't show the film. And that's either like, um, everything, the equipment that you're looking at suddenly just becomes, um, you can't comprehend it, you know, something that you should know, you just, it just turns into something you just don't understand and you just can't make any sense of it. This is a very basic thing, make sure you've got the right title, because we've had this before, particularly working here at the BFI with all the stuff we've got over the years, you maybe have three or four different um, films called exactly the same thing. Yeah. Well famously in the festival the other year we had, uh, we had um, it was a brand new film, but there was a film, I think it's called The Tree, and there was, an Indian ver there was an Indian film called The Tree, a British film called The Tree, and an American film called The Tree. And anyway, it didn't happen here, but one of the outside venues, they've opened up with the director there, and it's the wrong version. I'd just finished being a probationary, and I put on Spider-Man 2 instead of The Hills Have Eyes. Um, <laughs> I cried and phoned my mum. <laughs> Um, someone once told me that their nightmare was that someone had taken like a big pizza cutter and had, had cut up the film on the platter like this, so it was just in bits, so they, can't, they couldn't show it. Um, and then there are other people who say they've gone blind and they, they can't see what they're doing to sort of put the film on screen. 450 people in. Again, it was a very old print from the archive, but, that, but they couldn't hold the print they wanted to. And I was working with one of the newer guys at the time. And basically, after the film had gone past the bottom part of um, the feed sprocket, it broke. And he was going to show it. I said, no, don't shut it down, don't shut it down. Because it was a knackered old print. We just came and basically the film goes through at one and a half feet a second. Which doesn't sound a lot, but when you get the end, two and a half thousand feet of film coming up to about here, we just let it run onto the floor. And then we'd done the changeover onto the next, next reel. And then while that one was on, basically pick up the end and we just ran it onto the rewind bench. But I think, like I said, we've got 450 people in there. They don't know anything's going wrong. Back then, there was no advanced booking. It was literally, OK, the car park's full. The queue for the box office is going out or through the lobby. It's going out or across the car park. We need more seats because you did just have lots of angry parents going, what do you mean I can't see? And then multiplexes came along and you had the op opportunity to what you call interlock, where you would run one film through two projectors. You would run a film off one projector into the next projector over some rollers and into a third projector and then it would end up on the platter at the far end. And what you had to then do was ensure that all 
the projectors were synced so there'd be a, a button and a key to press on the back that meant that they were all operated off the same system so when you press start on the first one all three started probably the worst experience in doing that was the opening night of one of the big star trek films and uh we had interlocked one print through three if not four projectors and when we pressed the start button one of the projectors didn't start and the film exploded all over the floor and we had four auditoriums which was probably about 1500 people in total of furious star trek fans who were like what what do you mean the film's exploded <laughs> and the managers and, the, and you know, all of us were kind of like literally in tears trying to piece it back together great trick was not to miss out a reel my favorite was a, a bergman film which had reel five missing nobody ever never saw reel five the sonar but nobody complained and of course this was the old projectionist's way of um, ensuring that they got out of the building on time was to actually was to, was to drop a reel This podcast was produced by Digital Works with thanks to our team of wonderful volunteers and to our interviewees for sharing their time and their stories. Thanks to the British Film Institute, the Cinema Theatre Association and BEC2. The project was funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. You can hear all 20 interviews in their entirety and also watch the documentary film made for this project at www.realstories.org.uk. To find out more about our many oral history projects, please visit www.digital-works.co.uk. Please join us for the third and final episode, which explores the types of people who become projectionists, the ups and downs of work, and how changes in cinema and film projection affected their work, all leading to the development of digital projectors, which had such a huge impact on their industry.